I ran into a friend who also teaches leadership at NYU. We got to talking about leadership and sustainability, and it turns out that she was also teaching some sustainability as well. She asked me if she could ask me some more questions, and we scheduled a call. It turns out she recorded the call and shared the recording with me, which is the rest of this episode. I didn't know she was recording it, so this is me spontaneously. This is how I actually talk when I don't know I'm being recorded. This conversation covers a lot of my views on sustainability and what to do about it, and she asks a lot of questions that a lot of people ask. And I think it really covers a lot of my views and my actions on sustainability, leadership, as opposed to just sustainability, what to do and why, how I think about it. And you'll hear that some of this hits her seriously and gets her to think in different ways. I think it may with you too. Now, it was recorded off the phone. The sound quality is not great. Sorry about that, but I hope you like it anyway. Hey, how are you? How are you? Very good. I'm okay, too. A little bit of a cold, but other than that, doing okay. So I just finished reading the New Yorker article about you. How do you think that went? I'm really annoyed at the guy. You really? So he contacted me. Because I wrote a letter to the editor of The New Yorker that got published in October, I think. Mm-hmm. And so the guy said, we'd like to do a story for Talk of the Town. And I said, okay, great. Well, Talk of the Town, it's like, hey, look at this quirky person. Yes. And I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for... Prosperity? For sustainability leadership. This is because we could use role models and things like that. So please don't do this, a story on like, look at this quirky guy. And he's like, oh, of course. And then he's like, oh, look at this quirky guy. We spoke for like a long conversation before talking about sustainability and leadership and all sorts of things, all this really valuable stuff, none of which got in there. And he's like, oh, look, he squashes bugs and he's a vegan. People describe it as snarky. If you didn't know what he decided not to put in, it's like, okay, well, it's kind of interesting. And certainly I'm glad to be placed in the New Yorker, but he completely missed the boat. It's like the case with a lot of journalism not just this one particular guy, but I feel like journalism with regard to sustainability is like, it's like a journalist walking along sees a child drowning in a pool of water and then writes a story about the child drowning, but doesn't actually help the child. Mm-hmm. And okay, if that's your job, but you, you sacrifice your humanity. Like before you're a writer, you're a human. Well, you know, I have to say, I've read those pieces before and talked to the town. They're much more snarky. <laughs> but I have a few questions. That, um, oh, but, um, so, by the way, the yep. Ars Technica article and the Time Magazine article and the AP piece, those got it much more. I mean, the Time and Ars Technica I wrote, but the one by the, the AP story that got picked up in the Washington Post and the LA Times, that one's better. They still don't get the mission and purpose underneath the superficially visible behavior. But at least they're not snarky. I'll check it out. I actually, I didn't know there were those pieces. Uh, Let me just start with a few just general questions that I have about climate change. And that is specifically, my students in my class, I asked them what was on their minds in terms of the news stories, uh, hoping that it would evoke the... um, IPPC report in, uh, on Monday. No one took the bait. And then when I asked them, hey, do you know what's happening in terms of climate change? And I would say the response was about 75%. The response was literally, I gave that to them as a poll option. No, I haven't a clue. 
about 75%. Even the most alarming news doesn't seem to stick. Now, why do you think that is? For context, are, these are the um, high school students? Um, the, in this NYU case, they're NYU college graduate, under, uh, graduate students, yeah. I think for several generations, the new information about, first, I would not say climate change alone, because climate is one of many issues. And as soon as, as, soon as someone focuses on climate, then you're guaranteed that they're going to start mining for minerals and wreck things faster by doing more things that are unsustainable, such as solar, wind, and all the batteries. So I always make it clear environmental. And sometimes people feel like throwing their hands up because like, well, there's so many things I can keep track of even one of them, let alone all of them. But they all have the roots in one place, which is our human behavior. And that comes from our culture, our beliefs, our stories, our role models. And as long as we keep our culture the way it is, if you could snap your fingers and turn all carbon levels to pre-industrial, but we kept our culture, we will return to our present state overnight. If we don't change our culture, we will keep reproducing these results. So you're saying that you, you your sense is that aren't culturally attuned to what's happening because that well, doesn't match the say, narrative. That would be way more benign than what I would say. We are culturally... <laughs> Go for it. The difference between a verdant, fertile earth and what we have today is the physical and manifestation of our culture. We're not just not attuned to the wreckage. We are wrecking it. We believe that... I mean, we're entitled and we're spoiled and we think that maybe we could just fix stuff and go to any sustainable culture, of which there still remain a few hanging on by a thread, you know, they never take the last fruit from the tree. Never. You always leave some for others, and you always leave some for nature. We're like, take all of one tree and take the other guy's tree too. And conservation has changed from, sustainability has changed from, years ago it was conserving nature, but now it's preserving our culture with interesting. non-fossil fuel things. But they're happy to, our culture is wrecking things. It's causing extinctions and desertification and depleting aquifers and ocean acidification and all these things that are some tangentially but most unrelated to climate change. But everyone's just like, oh, if we can just decarbonize some things, then we'll be fine. But that will actually accelerate the overall effect. Well, there's so no question the, that, go ahead, continue. So to your question of why is this not sinking in, what we know about, the, about these environmental problems Historically, originally was discovered by scientists. They study nature. Well, I mean, indigenous cultures saw it coming centuries ago. But to our Western culture, it came from scientists, then educators, journalists, to some degree politicians, and to some degree activists. None of them are skilled in changing people's behavior and culture. Journalists, they're about stories. And they tell stories, but the stories are supposed to engage you and keep you reading and clicking, not necessarily to change your behavior. Likewise, scientists, they want to report their findings. Educators want to give you facts. Politicians generally are not leaders. We call them that, but they're not. They're generally doing what it takes to get voted, voted in, so, which means fundraising. No one has been effective or even no one knows how to lead. And leaders have not engaged on this. People who actually do lead have not engaged on this. Because they're busy flying around. When people who don't know how to lead 
don't feel listened to, they do things like amplify the, what was the word you used? Alarming. They'll be more oh. alarming. But more alarming is like the boy who cried wolf. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, if I say we're all going to die and then you don't do anything, and I say we're all going to die even more. You just like, all right, stop listening to Josh because I'm not dead and he said I was going to be dead, so he's wrong. Just increasing the alarm, that's not effective. There's lots of things that are effective, but leaders know how to do these things. That's why I teach sustainability leadership because how do you tap into people's intrinsic motivations that are already there but are being squashed by this extrinsic stuff of like, oh, Bangladesh is going to be underwater. You have to do this. That gets people to not do it. It leads people to disengage. Also, leaders have visions for a brighter future. But most people don't have a vision for a brighter future. I've asked a lot of people if they can imagine a world with no pollution, with no one polluting. Almost no one can. I mean, like maybe one out of 100 can. Most people, if you think, can you imagine a world? I'll ask you, can you imagine a world in which no one pollutes? No flying, no driving, no factory farms. Can you imagine such a world? Me, personally? No. Most people can't. And if I force you to imagine us getting there, can you imagine what it would look like? Like if we reached a world... <clears throat> yes. What would it look like? I don't know. My my immediate response is people will be happy, kind of like came came from my gut without thought. But that could be. Um, Most people think of it's like Mad Max, or we've reverted to the Stone Age, and people are barely scratching a living out of out of the dirt. But that was kind of pushing you. But most people they can't imagine it. So if I say to someone who can't imagine life without pollution, and I say to them, avoid straws. I'm asking them to take a step into the abyss. Like they know that the world that they're in now, whatever problems it has, it at least works. It's imaginable. I mean, it's a fail, this is a huge failure of imagination, but if someone, if I don't, if there's no vision for a brighter future, people, they'll like, yeah, I'll, I'll avoid straws because I saw the picture of the turtle with the straw in the nose. But I'm not going to go any farther because I don't want to risk the world going into recession and then a depression and everything falls apart. So management without so, leadership. So people, if, and, and then they just say, oh, it's more and more alarming. It doesn't work. It leads people to disengage and stop listening for their own protection. What kind of climate change disinformation do you think is the most damaging to people's understanding of a potentially um, better future? This is what you're expecting, but you know, Abraham Lincoln, I came across this quote. He said, nothing damages you more than to do something that you believe is wrong. Because when you do something that you yourself believe is wrong, you can justify it all you want, but flying is not sustainable and everyone knows it. Now, maybe you want to see your mom who's flying distance away, or maybe you want to go visit the Amazon. It still is something you believe is wrong. It makes us feel this internal conflict that we want to avoid. And so we tell ourselves what I do doesn't matter. We tell ourselves only governments and corporations can make a difference. We tell ourselves, oh, BP is trying to trick us into looking at our own behavior when really it's them. It's all rationalizations and justifications. All of the things that anyone says, I mean, when you do something that you know pollutes, that is to say you know it hurts other people, you rationalize and justify why it's okay. All those rationalizations and justifications, that's the misinformation that keeps things going. What I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need. 
oh, I have faith that some genius will solve this. The market should allocate resources to the problem solvers. They'll figure it out. The plane was going to fly anyway. I mean, you've heard all these things, right? You've probably said these things to yourself. If we don't do it, someone else will. We all come up with it ourselves. I mean, you can say Exxon and the Republicans come up with it too, but they're only saying stuff that everyone else says themselves too. That's our culture. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about a conversation that I had with another class on Monday night where we were talking about how fear of being wrong holds people back, especially when they're thinking about, well, it's particular to the situation that I was talking about. Self-editing holds people back. And there's a sort of corollary here. There's self-justification. It's built into your mindset. That's the most powerful thing. Yeah, I look at it as so, what it's, it's inexperienced. One of the reasons, one of the things that effective leaders, they're comfortable sharing their flaws because they know that that's how they learn and grow. One of the ways I look at it is that we as a species, humanity has been called to give a, a, a command performance. Like if we were an orchestra, we have to all play together, that we all have to be sustainable together. We're living in a world in which everyone, all the individual members of the orchestra, which is all of humanity, absolutely steadfastly refuses to practice their instruments, saying, oh, the whole orchestra has to play. Me playing a scale won't do anything. That's just going to distract me from doing something that I, I prefer to do more. I'll do a little bit, but I have to balance that with other things that I want to do. But now everyone knows for an orchestra to play well together, everyone's got to know how to play their instrument. But we're all saying, oh, some, we'll invent new instruments, and the instruments will do so. They'll somehow figure it out. Will, technology will do it, missing that technology only invents what we're doing ourselves. Everyone refuses to practice their instruments, thinking that it's a waste of time, but it's actually how to get the orchestra to play together. I'm playing my instrument. I'm practicing my scales by trying to live sustainably. Lo and behold, one, I enjoy it, as everyone enjoys. I mean, people might not enjoy playing an instrument, but everyone enjoys experiencing nature. When you practice your instrument, you know how to do these things. So you're talking about fear of being wrong and so forth. Well, yeah, sometimes you play the wrong note, and that's how you learn how to play the right note. But as long as we think, oh, somehow the orchestra will just play together with, with super technology, better instruments, but we still won't practice, that we call practice individual action, and that's not the, what the orchestra is really doing. No, that's how the orchestra plays. It's like you have to play yourself. Then you can play together. So can you give, uh, give me an overview of your in real life, sustainable life? Well, How I mean, would you describe the big, it? The way I describe I mean, the, the biggest and most important piece is the mindset shift. Everything else follows. Before the mindset shift, if you feel like what I do doesn't matter, if you feel like if I act, then that's a big struggle for me and it doesn't really affect anyone else. So it's counterproductive. Any behavior will only reinforce that belief. And people feel like, oh, I'll comply with what you're saying, but I have to balance it and it takes away from the rest of life. The mindset shift is the biggest thing, is to recognize, and, and the Spodek method is my leadership, sustainability leadership technique that creates the mindset shift. Then people want to do more. It's like, if you feel like practicing an instrument is a burden, like it's a chore, then I can force you to practice. It's possible that some people will just find a joy in it, but most people feel like, oh, I have to. 
so for me now, I one of the thoughts that runs through my head all the time is people lived without an electric grid for 300,000 years up until about a century ago. And still most of the world lives without an electric grid. And those who have an electric grid, it usually goes down. Why should having technology make me more dependent, less resilient, more addicted? So I keep finding ways to get myself off those things. I mean, I'm constantly thinking of the people at the receiving end of the pollution, the people who are going to be kicked off their land if I buy an airplane ticket in order to get to the minerals and so forth underneath. Everyone talks about family and how valuable, how much flying contributes to spending time with people who are distant or taking their kids to vacations. But if I ask people, if family is so important, imagine someone somewhere on the other side of the world and for them to spend time with their family, you get kicked off of your land and sent into a refugee camp and your kids get sent into a mine to dig for them and you have to drink poisoned water and polluted air. Do you value those other people visiting their family, but you are the ones who get kicked off your land? It's really obvious. It's not like this is not a complicated ethical issue. No one wants to be kicked off their land just so someone can fly around. But everyone wants to fly around when someone else is getting kicked off. My heart is constantly thinking of how can I help these people who I, whom I otherwise would hurt? It's much more heart and, and attitude than what I do. If you want to find out how to live more sustainably, I'm not the person to go to. I mean, your grandparents, I mean, everyone who ever lived up until a couple hundred years ago, still a lot of people today. I mean, I'm learning how to ferment because my fridge is unplugged, but I'm no expert at fermentation. There's a lot of people who do it better than I do. I'm just trying to live by my values on my personal level. But what the New Yorker completely missed was how I can help others feel the love that I feel for humanity, not just you know, my selfish wanting to go visit the Amazon. How can I make it so that nature here is that we've wrecked is, you know, how do we make the pavement go away and let things rewild? I'm trying to change culture. So my individual behavior is just for credibility and authenticity and genuineness and practicing my scale. But that's not Beethoven's ninth. No amount of looking at me will see the Beethoven's ninth that I envision when we all play together. Well, I've never said that before. That's a like I like that analogy. Watching Yo-Yo Ma play his scales does not show what him soloing with an orchestra playing some great piece. That's what it's about. I assume the, cha- the change was gradual, but was there a particular point that launched you on the path that you're on now? There's many, many, many. If there's any one beginning, it would be maybe when I was a kid growing up and I didn't like eating meat. And then my parents were like, no, you have to. Like, I believed that you had to eat meat in order to live. Reading the book, Diet for a Small Planet, led me to understand that I didn't need to eat meat. So in 1990, I stopped eating it. But that was not really an environmental thing. That was just, I didn't want to eat meat. But it, it was an experiment where I discovered that I could do things differently I didn't have to do just what everyone around me did. And then it led to avoiding hydrogenated oils, and then later I, avoiding high fructose corn syrup. Then a, a big shift came when I gave myself a challenge to go for a week without packaged food. All these experiments were building up to bigger things. So then I uh, trying to avoid flying for a year, 
and then trying to unplug the fridge for see how long I can go for that. Unplugging the apartment from the electric grid, seeing how long I can go for that. But also starting the podcast, which led me to learn how to lead others, including Trump supporters, hardcore evangelicals and, and red state politicians, and realizing that everyone values like this this is tribalism that says it's a liberal issue, but if we drop the tribalism and look at our core values, every community is consistent with sustainability. This tribalism has led to it being partisan. So this, anyway, to answer your question, there's like a whole lot of things that I've done, but most of them were really just taking one little step because each step before led to results that I liked and questioning the beliefs that my society taught me that anything other than pedal to the metal progress which I put in quotes, is risking reverting to the Stone Age, which is like a huge lie. What do you want young people in particular to take away from your, and I'm calling it This Sustainable Life, TSL? So what do you want them to take away from your TSL experience? Young people can't, they don't vote, they don't own assets, they're not on boards of directors of mm-hmm. large polluting companies. <clears throat> so... Mm-hmm. They're not really a focus for me. I think most people look at young people because they, their only way of influencing people is through authority and they can force young people to listen. But if you, could, if you could change one person, if you could lead one person to really want to change, should it be a 10-year-old or the CEO of Exxon? Well, I understand what you're saying, but having said that, we are, there is an audience in the class, classroom and, and possibly in the textbook that is those are the um that's the audience here i mean i still want to i want to influence the teachers and the principals if they're reading the book before the kids do i want to say that if you're trying to teach the kids to do stuff that, that you yourself are not doing more than they you want them to forget it get rid of the book and, and just teach them how to pollute because i mean because that's what you're going to do you're going to teach them oh here's the stuff that we have to tell you but we don't but when you grow up uh, the real world means do the opposite. If you could encourage people to do one thing different, just do one thing different starting tomorrow, what would it be? To get that mindset shift, to tap into the... It, in my experience, you can't just do it through reflection. It can come through action, but it really comes through conversation where someone walks you through a process to share what the environment means to you and really explore that. I mean, that's what the Spodic method does. And I, I really don't know anything else that works. If anything else worked better, I would say go for it. I just see people reinforcing sustainability is a burden and it's deprivation and sacrifice. Anyone who feels that way, I would not encourage them to, I, I would not, you got to change the mindset first. Otherwise, it's like, I mean, if someone believes, if someone was abused as a child and they believe that, a way to show love is through violence. If you say to someone, show more love to your child, they're going to hit their kid. You've got to shift the mindset first. And if you get them to, to show it in some other way, they're going to feel like, yeah, but this isn't really showing my, how much I love my kid. At some point, I'm going to have to discipline them properly. That's our culture. Are you using the terms sustainability, leadership, and Spodek method? interchangeably or those two different entities, two different concepts? Sustainability leadership would be, the sustainability is a property of how we would live. 
you can live sustainably or not sustainably. Sustainability leadership is how to help people reach sustainability through intrinsic motivation, role models, vision, integrity, the, the tools of leadership, as opposed to the tools of management, which might be carrots and sticks, instruction, facts, numbers. I, I believe we need both management and leadership. Within sustainability leadership, there's a technique that has come to be called the Spodic method, which is in sustainability, it's roughly the equivalent of what in the civil rights era, nonviolent civil disobedience was a, a technique that worked. It didn't solve everything, but it did solve some things. And I think a lot of people when they first heard of it thought, what, you want us not to fight? Of course we should fight. But when the others have superior force, but even they believe what they're doing is wrong, then that's a technique that helps reveal to them that they're doing something that even they believe is wrong. In sustainability, the Swedish method plays a similar role. It leads people to share their environmental values, act on them, and realize that this is a route to a better life. So it's for life living by their values and, and more sustainability. So it's a specific technique. Do you ask your coaching clients to make TSL-style changes? It depends on what kind of clients. If it's just straight coaching clients, which I still have a few of those, yep. Yep. then, I mean, they usually come in and they want leadership training. They want to reach the C-suite. They want to lead their teams more effectively. And with them, if sustainability comes up, I engage with them on it, but I don't push it because I'm doing something different with them. If they've come mm-hmm. to me for sustainability and leadership coaching, which is rare so far, then I work with them on this stuff. I'm creating a mastermind group to help spread it and I'm working on my book. So I'm trying to grow the stuff. You're trying to grow the book? Is that what you just said? The stuff. Uh, I the can send you a paper okay. I wrote for... I wrote a paper for the Leader to Leader Journal on the photo method. And I could send that to you if you want. Sure. Yeah, sure. Why not? I'll try to remember. I'm not in front of my computer right now. <laughs> I assume that you're... that. You're not saying to folks, yes, you can be sustainable, but you don't need to reach for a policy or legal changes by reaching out, doing whatever it is that you do in terms of activism, like voting people out of office, for example. So I assume that you see these two things as mutually compatible. Like on one hand, I'm doing something in my home, and on the other hand, I'm encouraging my leaders to make legal changes. How can you help folks make a bridge between individual and government action. Just because you, yeah, I'll just stop there. How can you help folks make a bridge between individual action and government action? Well, I think people know that they're lying to themselves and others when they say individual action doesn't matter. Look at any historical, cultural, social change. It always happens from the little guys. You could say, the plantation owners, they're the ones who own the slaves. They're the ones who should stop owning slaves. Yeah, I agree. And if that's your starting point, you're going to wait forever. The slaves have to rebel. It's always come from the people, from low-level individuals to make it an issue. Those are some of the people we look up to and, and hold in high regard. Mandela and, and, and Gandhi, people like that. It, of course, we think that the people who are causing the problem should be the ones to fix it but they're also the ones benefiting the most from it. So if we wait for them, that's just abdicating our acting. I don't believe that anyone really believes it if you really probe them. 
I think that that's just what they say to themselves so that they can sleep better at night, not acting. How do you expect the orchestra to play well if no one knows how to play their instrument? And why do we think playing an instrument is so, such a mess? Like this whole idea, oh, see, there's all these journalist articles that say, here's 10 little things you can do for the environment, implying you don't want to do them. I mean, there's meatless Mondays, but no one says drinkless driving Tuesdays or seatbelt Wednesdays because always wear your seatbelt. It's not like you have to balance wearing your seatbelt against something else. I mean, people did once feel that way, but now they don't. And it would be weird for someone to say, well, I know you like drinking and driving, but maybe once a week drive sober. The rest of the time drive drunk. That implies you don't want to do it. This belief that it's like, I really want to live life joyfully, but I have to do the sustainable stuff. What? Living sustainably, that, that we expect living sustainably to be something that we don't want to do is a lie. It's a cultural lie that helps maintain our cultural system of hurting that hurts other people in order for us not to feel so bad about hurting other people. In my experience, the more that I act sustainably, the more that I want to act more sustainably. It's the opposite. But if you haven't tried, you wouldn't know because you believe what the culture tells you. What else do you want to add to the conversation or what questions do you think I should be asking that I haven't? Of me? Well, I'm curious how this all sounds. Um, well, it sounds right on to me. It's funny because my partner in this project is really, yeah, she's much more about government, private sector, private sector mostly action. Like we should really be railing on the private sector because we as individuals can't do that much. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing this information with her. I mean, I don't think she, she's somebody who would say, oh no, don't do, don't live a sustainable life. But it's just for her, her mindset is corporate America is the only solution. But I think, yeah, I think I look forward to sharing this information and seeing what she has to say about it and and definitely working with people and trying to like encourage them to do multiple things. To to find the joy in it. I, I highly recommend focusing on people and their emotions more than compliance mm-hmm. and things for them to do. You know, when someone says Governments and corporations, they're the ones who should act. To me, that's like saying the only way to finish a marathon is to cross the finish line. Yeah, but you also have to do the 26 miles to get there. Yeah, you do have to cross the finish line. So getting governments and corporations to act is like, that's like crossing the finish line. But that's not where you start. Now, now that, that's still just the beginning of yet another marathon. But that marathon is one with the wind at, the back, at our backs. Technically, the only way to finish a marathon is to cross the finish line. But you, you, there's a lot to get there. If you say to someone, you must run 26 miles, that's not going to work as well as if you can instill in them the love of, of going for a run. Mm-hmm. And, and it could be something else. It could be like you know, playing basketball or playing a musical instrument. It's like weird. It's like saying just whatever you do, don't practice dribbling or free throws. Don't practice layups. Just do not do anything yourself. That's how the team will get better. What? It's crazy. The team, this is how the Knicks can do well. No one practiced basketball. Just the team has to win. But no one should, pray, play, should, should practice. That's what we're saying. 
I like the orchestra analogy. I think it works really well. That's partly what, when people look at me unplugging my fridge, they're missing that I'm developing stories. I'm developing experience. I'm saying it wrong until I figure out how to say it right. Anything that makes sense is like the product of saying it a way that was counterproductive every other way until finally something fell into place. That's like a week or two old, the, the orchestra analogy. No, maybe a month uh-huh. I like it. It's, it I, I, yeah, I do like it. That's really all I have in terms of questions and discussion points. Um, oh, wait, I do have another yes. thing. I'm sure you've heard people say things like we're addicted to fossil fuels and things like that, like addiction. Mm-hmm. And now I want to be precise that I, I do believe that we're addicted. And I don't mean in some abstract sense, like the nation is addicted to fossil fuels. I mean that we are addicted, and it's not to fossil fuels, it's to the comfort and convenience that they bring or that pollution in general brings. I mean, if I talked about fusion or, or uranium, it would be the same thing, or solar, wind, hydro. They all pollute, and we're addicted to the results. Now, when someone's addicted, to the outside, if I see someone on heroin, which I see all the time because I'm by Washington Square Park, they look like a wreck to me. But to them, it doesn't feel like they're a wreck. Actually, it feels like euphoria to them. And if I say to someone, avoid using heroin, they don't hear, avoid throwing your life away. They hear, avoid euphoria, avoid joy, avoid what you look forward to. So if I was to say to someone who's addicted to, say, flying, avoid flying, they hear, avoid spending time with your family, avoid your job, even though they're wrecking things on a scale much greater than the heroin user. Addiction feels to someone warm and comfortable and supportive, inviting. If I say to someone, consider not using disposable diapers with your kid, they feel like, what? That's impossible. That's a terrible idea. Whereas if I say avoid spinach, they don't feel that great sense of loss, even though spinach is undeniably healthy. The other thing about this addiction, recognizing it as addiction, not as a metaphor, but addiction, is that when someone is addicted to something, Gamblers feel like they win every now and then. And so that jolt, that brief jolt, they feel like winners. But actually, they're losers. The rest of, most of the rest of their life, they're losing. If someone takes meth, they feel full of energy for that brief, predictable jolt. But the rest of their life, they have less energy. People who are addicted to social media feel connected, but they're sitting in a room by themselves. The rest of their life, they're actually less connected. So if they quit any of those things, if they, if, they exit those, if they become unaddicted, the gambler will actually have more in life. They'll be less of a loser. They'll win more. The meth user will actually have more energy. The social media addict will actually have more connection. So you tell me what you fear losing when you stop polluting, and I will tell you exactly what you will get more of. So if you think, wait, if I don't pollute, I'm not going to spend time with family, you will spend more time with family. If you think, wait, people, other people can't afford these things, it will help them. You tell me what you fear losing, and I will tell you what you will get more of exactly. But it feels like we're giving up warmth and comfort. Not flying feels like giving up nature, but actually not flying means restoring nature and finding it 
nearby instead of thinking it's far away. It's impossible to believe when you are addicted, but the sign of what you can't, I can't, I can't possibly do without, that is the sign of addiction. A heroin user is like, they love that stuff. Anyone else looks at it, it's like, oh my God, you're throwing your life away, but they love it. And the thought of losing it is like death. It's like losing their best friend. Well, <laughs> yeah, addiction is uh, serious business. It really, it's horrible. It's, I mean, it's brutal, and we're heavily addicted. I mean, look at, uh, go to other countries. This is so brutal. We go to places that are sustainable, and we give them cell phones, which is like the most addictive thing, and we bring them, we don't give them food aid that they ask for. We give them food aid that we want, that we give them, which is like this addictive stuff. What, then they're addicted, and, and they're stuck. And it's tragic. I mean, we used to go force them to assimilate with guns, but cell phones and Coca-Cola are far more effective. No one who doesn't have these addictive things is like, oh, I want a cell phone. I want fusion reactors. Love, love is not giving people what you want them to have. It's what they, we have to, it's understanding what they want. Doesn't it suck when someone gives you a gift that they want you to have, but you don't want? You have to be polite about it. And then you're stuck with this thing. And by contrast, at least in my experience, when someone like really knows me well, and they say, I'd like to get you this. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly what I could use. That's so much more, that's love. We, we're not acting out of love. We're acting out of dominance. Well, um, that is it for me. Yeah, I didn't think about it until you just said it. I mean, I was just talking, but I, I might make it a blog post. Oh, a podcast sure. Episode Why not? This, Why is what, not? this is what Josh is like when he's not trying to record. <laughs> yeah, why not? That sounds good to me. Might as well. I hope this was helpful to you, and I hope it wasn't too yeah. heavy. I'm not worried about it being heavy. I'm just, I'm just thinking about what you're saying. If it merits following up, I'd be happy to. I'll talk to you later.